Welcome, everybody. This is Joe DePrisco talking with Paula Priamos, the celebrated author of Shyster's Daughter, her memoir, and the author of a new novel called Inside V. And if you don't know Inside V, the novel, then you need to examine what you've been doing with your time over the last few months. It's a, it's a, it's a page-turning thriller. It's about a former defense lawyer named Ava who wakes up in an empty hotel room to find her husband missing days before he is supposed to report to jail for a heinous crime he swears he didn't commit. She takes matters into her own hands. Searching for her husband instead of calling the police V, as she's called, is led on a chase that ends up in her own dark past. Ain't it the truth? With grit and determination, she's forced to confront her own misdeeds while coming face-to-face with her husband's. Inside V, published by Rare Bird Books, Tyson Cornell Publisher, is a deep look at trust, marriage, and the secrets we carry. So it's it's great to talk to you, Paula. Paula, uh, this is her second book. She teaches English and creative writing at CSU San Bernardino. And uh, am I talking to you down in uh, San Bernardino today, Paula? Um, actually, I'm up in my home in Lake Arrowhead. Ah. And I'm calling from Northern California, which is a, a different state from Southern California. Pretty much, um, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> different weather, different politics, different everything. Speaking of which, I mean, we live in such a crazy time, don't we? Uh, oh, being a writer in, in Trump world is, I mean, it, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to say it. It's, uh, it's a disgraceful, horrible time we're living in. You know, what, what's hard for me is I'm a registered independent. And it helps because as a professor, I play devil's advocate, and I'm try to, I try to be fair to both sides. Um, but the times we're living in have become so incredibly divisive um, that it's just uncomfortable to talk to anybody right now about any, well, any issue. Well, on campus, do you find that, uh, that the campus politics are, are getting in the way of teaching writing? Oh, absolutely. On the door, on my office door, I, I put up my own personal quote, and it reads, real writers push the boundaries. They don't kowtow to political correctness. And I sign my name to the bottom because anything, anything that deviates from what has been deemed politically correct, you will be crucified for and that's so detrimental to a writer, and it's so detrimental to literature as we know it. I know. So I'm, I'm affiliated with Cal, uh, University of California at Berkeley a little bit, so I'm a little bit familiar with what's going on on campus. And I think it's a pretty clear line between respecting Title IX considerations, which are crucial for uh, the well-being of our kids and our students and the community at large, and and all the the postures and uh, protections. I mean, trigger warnings. I mean, I'm, I don't want to get. Maybe we shouldn't get into this, but it seems to me that you know, life is. Uh, if there was a there are trigger warnings for everything that happens in our life, we would all day long we'd be seeing trigger warnings. Driving on the right. freeway, we would see trigger warnings. Uh, right. Reading reading great stories, great novels, great poems. Um, these should these should trigger some deep concern. So that's what you're doing, and you're not. You're talking about secrets. You're talking about trust, marriage, and there's lots of hot subjects in here that you're you're dealing with. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, the how you um, 
how you navigate your instincts as a writer between uh, memoir and fiction. I mean, The Shyster's Daughter is a was a much admired is a much admired memoir. Your first book about your dad. And this novel, which is your first novel, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, where, what part of your brain, what part of your heart, um, what, what gets activated in the course of, of writing in these different genres? Well, kind of like you, um, I've kind of been fascinated with the law because I, you know, I, I have a, my late father was a defense attorney who was disbarred, and like your father who had issues with the law. Um, I was fascinated by that angle alone, and I wanted to show the complexity of my father, that he wasn't just, you know, this high-profile, um, immoral defense attorney, but he was actually one hell of a good father to me. Um, uh-huh. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to show his story and my story together. So I kind of saw the memoirs almost like a love story between a father and his daughter, um, and and you know and show and show how at times he was a bad father, how he made yeah. mistakes, but how he always loved me. Um, and and the law also plays a crucial role in Inside V, um, and and um, in terms of how the husband's been accused. And and I'm not giving in anything away. He gets convicted and of um, assaulting a 17-year-old Latina. And I wanted to write about the hypocrisy, how if you're accused of something heinous, you're pretty much convicted. Whether Mm -hmm. you've got your trial or not, there's always that stigma attached to you, um, that you were convicted. Or not convicted, but you were accused of something terrible. So it's interesting, when with memoirs, uh, the the impulse to write a memoir, uh, I think, uh, gets activated when we have some unsettled feelings, like you, as right. you just sort of explained, unsettled feelings, and and really also some ignorance. Like I need to understand what the heck happened to me and my family, and right. and that drives you to uh, investigate. So it becomes, I mean, for me, I've said this before, but for me, was I was right. My first memoir is Subway to California, and then my new memoir is The Pope of Brooklyn. That was my father's street name in Brooklyn. His uh, life was a criminal. And, uh, you know, when I was writing Subway, uh, it was very difficult for me. Uh, it was sort of like doing therapy on myself. Right. And I wanted to send myself a bill at the end of every day, <laughs> uh, which I didn't do. I probably wouldn't have paid it. But I would have paid it. Of course, I'd pay my bill. Um, but it's, but cheap. It's, it's, it's cheap therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it isn't up at 15 minutes. You know, you got to move along. So there's, you know, there's a. So I think often think about memoir and fiction. Um, somebody, Randall Jarrell, famous writer, said uh, um, he defined a, a novel as a, a piece of fiction of some length with which something is very wrong. And and that's sort of been. Uh, I, I think it's a beautiful definition of a novel. My definition of a memoir is. It's a piece of nonfiction of some length with which something is wrong with the author, and uh, so I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I know inside myself where I locate the urge to write autobiographically or the urge to write fiction, 
In fact, I think maybe memoir is closer to poetry, and I'm not going to make that case. I could, it would take up our whole program, but I think there's something about the immediacy of a poem. Um, there's no page-turning quality to a poem. A poem is the opposite of page-turning, but there's a way, because you want to say in the moment, but uh, there's a way in which uh, creating the world in which one grows up, in which one families, which one's family uh, comes into existence, has, has such an immediate and staying power for us. Whereas fiction gives us a chance to lie, to make up stuff. Uh, so I'm wondering, in, in inside V, I mean, it's very, and it's very difficult. We should warn everybody. It's very difficult to talk about a thriller and. Because you're always, it's a spoiler. I gotta, we'd be doing spoiler alerts continually in the course of this conversation. There are lots of intense turns in this novel, inside the, and it is a page turner. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, where um, the, your urge to tell a lot, you know, to make up stuff. Um, I mean, would you? Okay, here's a dirty question, and I and I apologize for this question. Is Inside V an autobiographical novel? You can bite my head off if you want. No, but for some reason, I've had people refer to Ava as you, and yeah. they keep saying <laughs> everywhere I go. And mm. and I, I say, first of all, my husband has not been arrested for statutory rape, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm not her whatsoever. But it's just, I guess, because it's first person and because I made her Greek, and I'm Greek, um, I think that people just kind of assume because there's that intimacy in the narration um, that, oh, it must be the author, it must be someone autobiographical. Um, But it isn't whatsoever. Um, She is tough. She is strong. She says what she feels. And I'm that way. So I guess in that sense we're similar. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and, and I've I'm not a victim. I won't ever be a victim. I don't believe in that. Um, but but that's where it ends. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I started the book because I saw these characters. I came up with these characters in my head. And then I came up with the conflict of, you know, what happens if you're married to somebody, you fall for somebody, and that passion is so intense, and that passion never wanes. It never ebbs into any kind of stability. It's always almost bordering on the irrational. Mm-hmm. And what if that type of marriage um, suffers some kind of major blow, such as being accused of something that heinous, um, mm-hmm. statutory rape? What would, what would the woman do, and how would the man try to save his marriage? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where the idea came from, and then the other characters came, you know, came to mind after that. And I'm, I'm a big believer in starting with characters, then the conflict, then you kind of figure things out as you go. So mm-hmm. for me, this book was the best time I've ever had writing, hands down. Mm. I had a really good time writing this book. So were you, su- so you found yourself surprised by your characters as you went along? Yeah, I did, and um, I didn't. I had a, an idea of where it was headed, and I, I'm I'm big on writing longhand and spiral notebooks first. Everything I write is in longhand first, so I had these ideas of where it was headed, but I wasn't um, 
married to it. You know, I wasn't going to be stuck to what I saw in my head because I believe that some some writers force things, and you can tell they're forced. And right. so if somebody was going to be a good guy, then they're going to be a good guy. Um, if they're going to turn bad, then and it's natural that they turn bad, then they naturally turn bad. So, so my characters would surprise me, but I stayed true to the characters. And um, I really believe that, you know, I, I like to keep, I like to have my characters be smart. And so everyone from the Latina girl to um, Grant, Ava's husband's first wife, they all have great lines. Mm-hmm. They're all smart in their own ways. Um, because I hate those stereotypes of, okay, this is going to be the bad person, or this is going to be, um, you know, our heroine, and she's not going to have any flaws, or her flaws are going to be really minor. And I wanted I wanted people to be complicated and messed up in their own ways, like we all are. Right. So okay, good. That, that's that's fascinating. You know, a lot of I hear, I read lots of times where people praise uh, fiction for representing uh, sympathetic characters. Right. You ever think right. about that as an issue? What, what does it mean to be a sympathetic character? What, is, it, is it a virtue uh, for the reader? Is it, is it something that the reader is looking for? Does the reader need something different from that? If they want an unrealistic read, then by <laughs> all means pick up a typical women's mystery book where mm-hmm. the woman writes this doc woman who's a victim of, you know, like Girl on the Train, you know, she's a victim, and she has a drinking problem, and her husband's been terrible to her, and oh, it's so predictable. I predicted that ending within the first three chapters, in the Uh first three parts of the book, um, Uh rather, and um, I just feel like there's this um, predominant push now to write these stock characters that are virtuous and sympathetic and victims, and um, they finally somehow, you know, get the wherewithal to fight back. And um, I just, I don't see most women that way. I think I think we're fighters all the time. We get into bad situations, but, you know, we find our ways out of them. So I, I don't, I kind of buck against the stereotypes that are so, so prevalent in today's fiction. I yeah, don't know yeah, if it's yeah. because of political correctness uh-huh. or if it's publishers pushing that on everyone, that mindset. Huh. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've noticed that as well in books. Uh, well, I think that there is this default desire to make life kind of neat and, uh, and to tidy up everything. Mm-hmm. So as you were talking, I was thinking, well, you know, when, when I, I mean, I had this experience distinctly writing the memoir. I had some pretty uh, significant uh, enemies in my life for reasons we don't need to go into right now. <laughs> and I found myself, as I was writing about them, damn, I was so disappointed. I found myself sort of seeing their side of the argument. <laughs> so but they, that's oh, a good okay. thing. That's a good that's thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, it, it's yeah. a challenging thing. I mean, psychologically, right. emotionally, morally. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, the guy was a jerk, but, you know, maybe so am I sometimes. Uh, if you talk to my wife, maybe more than sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, there's, so you see, you see, I have a rounded conception of a character, 
uh, look, we're all mysteries. Um, and if fiction doesn't capture that, um, I mean, everything that I value in, in writing, poetry or fiction or nonfiction or memoir, everything I value is that to create the sense of wonder about you know, what the heck is this life about? What am, what's my experience taught me? What is this character's experience teaching her or him? And if it, if it doesn't reduce to uh, a, a search for understanding and, 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 and the ineffability of each and every life, then what the heck are you doing? Um, Russell Baker's great memoirist said, uh, nobody's life makes any sense. Just tell a good story. Okay, that's pretty good pragmatic advice. But when you were talking about with fiction, the, the desire to make things neat, I mean, that is the, that's just a commercial sellout proposition to make sure that people feel good about themselves at the end of, of a reading experience. I don't know if that's not such a great idea. I don't think that's much of a goal. I don't know if the pursuit of happiness is a goal generally for human beings. I think it's harder than that. It's more complicated than that. A search for wisdom and, and meaning, that's tougher than uh, the search for happiness. So anybody who wants to tie up uh, life in a, in a, in a neat, with a nice little ribbon, eh, boring as hell. I, I can tell. No, and you I don't do that. I, I completely agree. And in the end of Inside V, some things are resolved and other things are left open. And that's because life is not neat. Life Life's messy and there may be consequences down the road. You know, and, and so I like leaving things that way. Um, and your characters, you know, you can, right, you can relate to whatever, I know it's an awkward expression, but you can relate to everything going on with these characters because we all have dark sides. And your characters, even in their most sympathetic moments or moments in which they're doing things that we would might otherwise approve of, you know, we know something else is driving them at the same time. And, and that goes to the narrator. I mean, your narrator, V, is telling, Ava is telling the story, and, you know, she's, and we get the sense as we read, well, this is someone who's we can trust because, first of all, she's she's telling the unvarnished truth about herself. There's a lot of nooks and crannies in her life, and a lot of uh, darkness seeps in from the other side of town all the time. And if we don't, if, if a character doesn't have that, then why the heck would anybody be interested? It's totally unrealistic to think otherwise. So all all to say that your, your people. Your characters, um, okay, I mean, I asked you a second ago if this is, uh, is there a way in which the Inside V is autobiographical. But don't you find, follow that all our characters, I mean, we're all our characters. All of, all of, everybody we create is a projection on some level of things inside ourselves, aspects of ourselves. And we wouldn't be so fascinated with people who are, reprehensible or altruistic for that matter unless we had those kinds of urges inside yeah that's true um you know i can recall there's a scene um in the parking lot late at night with um, one of the characters named martin and he's kind of having a little bit of a face-off with ava and i was martin as i was writing that scene and then i was also ava and you kind of, yeah, you kind of draw from your own vision of the world and you draw on your own experiences with 
people you've encountered, um, and you go from there. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I had a good, I had a good idea of all my characters, and I just let them play out. And yeah, they're all, they're all a part of who I am, sure. Um, but I, I just, this was a book where I just let myself be free. I didn't worry about audience. I didn't worry about a publisher. I didn't worry about how people would perceive me because I know just by the fact I was writing about a 17-year-old Latina, I was going to catch a little bit of flack for that because I'm white. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was writing about somebody who's from a different ethnicity. And I Mm -hmm. always tell my students, you can write whoever the hell you want to write about as long as you observe people and you may have people like that in your life who are different than you um and you give them a fair shake in your in your work yeah well now you raise the issue of cultural misappropriation which i know oh, is a hot topic oh my god everywhere. that makes me want to barf go ahead <laughs> so i was thinking so i mean does that does that include also well I, you know we can't read dostoevsky we can't read uh Flaubert, we can't read uh, Art um, Miller. We can't read. I mean, where do we draw the line here? When what is it in cultural misappropriation? I mean, culture. I, mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if you can have a meal in California unless you're appropriating some other culture. I mean, oh, I know. <laughs> and what's crazy? What what I try to explain to people, and it's like talking to a brick wall, is that here in California we have every ethnicity imaginable here in this state. We have everybody from all walks of life. So most of us can write accurately about all kinds of different people because we're around all different types of people and we're mm-hmm. accustomed to being around all different types of people. Um, it's when we start to separate ourselves and we say, you can't write that or you can't write this. I find that a form of um, really... Uh, it's self-censorship. Um, yeah, yeah, it's censorship, and it's disturbing, and it's it's really doing some significant damage to literature as we know it. I mean, they're, um, at my school, they don't like to use Ernest Hemingway, and so some students have never heard of Hemingway, uh-huh. and I actually use him in a beginning creative writing class simply because I use um, one of his collections um, his short mm-hmm. story question knows a Kilimanjaro and other stories. Right, right, right. I know because I'm yeah. able to talk about the iceberg theory. Mm-hmm. I'm able to talk about what is a self-contained story, how it can only be three or four pages, how it can be a much longer work like Snows of Kilimanjaro. Um, so I only have, we're on a quarter system right now, we're moving to semester, but I only have a certain amount of weeks to cover for these students what a short story can look like and what a what a successful one can look look like. So I do use him because rarely will anyone use him. And if they do, um, he's always relegated to hills like white elephants. Mm-hmm. So um, I try. The short, happy life of Francis McCumber is kind of fun to read in that context. Oh, I love that one. I use that one, too. I absolutely yeah. love that one because it deals with uh, male, female, relationships, who's the dominant one in a relationship, a man finally becoming a man. I mean, I love all that stuff. Right. Um, 
but yeah, this cultural appropriation nonsense just drives me up the wall. I can't stand it. And I have students. I, I just, my last class, my last creative writing class, I had um, a Latina writing about um, her blonde friend. And she said, she asked me permission. Can I write about her? And I said, of course you can write about her. You're around her all the time. Try to capture who, what she's like. Give her a conflict. You know, if you want to base it on her, fine. Base it on her and fictionalize it, you know. Um, uh-huh. And she did a good job. So I try to encourage I try to encourage people to write about other groups because I just think that um, our, you know, if you look, let's say you look at the um, breadth of our literature now, 50, 50, 100 years from now, how sterilized will it look to other, to other people, you know? And, and it's well, just disturbing to me. Right. I mean, there are, uh, I mean, now there are, there are prevailing literary postures and uh, right. there are, you know, the, the received pieties about how to perceive. I mean, the thing I would say about Hemingway is, yeah, his misogyny can be called out all day long uh, and, and, and it should be, I suppose. Not I suppose, of course it should be. But what the, 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 clean, the, clean, the cleanness, the clarity of his prose is worth, and I don't write like Hemingway and I don't aspire to, although I admire the hell out of the, the prose style. But it, it, it's important that a student knows about this. And also, I mean, just the very concept, I mean, his very famous, famous concept of uh, the, the, the bullshit detector that a writer needs. I mean, my goodness, you need that. You, you definitely need that to be a writer. But, but to go, to, just to follow up on what you were saying about, and maybe tie into where we began, and also your Greek stuff, your Greek uh, ethnic uh, identity and association, I should say. So, I mean, Socrates said, uh, you know, love is a disease. And he said that in Greek, but uh, um, I can't remember how to say that. So he... And there's a, you know, your book is a highly eroticized, has a highly eroticized landscape. There's a lot of physical detail, um, a lot of detail about clothes, for instance, which I always find fascinating, and 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 physicality. And I'm wondering, um, is that did you feel like you were in a new frontier there? I mean, we have there's so much piety about how we represent sexuality and eroticism generally and you just blew past that pretty continually throughout the book well to stay true to the couple Ava and Grant I had to show how passionate their life is together Mm -hmm. and so that includes an unvarnished look at their sex life it includes you know, how they are together um, sexually, how they are when they are avoiding each other and being cold to one another because she, you know, she's second-guessing whether or not he, in fact, did did that reprehensible crime. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just, like I said, I I didn't worry about, um, you know, how to write a sex scene or how to avoid this or how to avoid that. And, in fact... Getting back to some typical women's fiction, the sex scenes are absolutely ludicrous. 
in some of these books. <laughs> They're absolutely, if anybody has sex like this, they should stop having sex, period, and become celibate. <laughs> I mean, r- really, yeah. really. Yeah. And and um, I get so tired, like, uh, for instance, in Gone Girl, it's just one scene after another of bad sex, right? It's just huh. this awful negative sex acts everywhere. And I just think, my God, you know, why bother getting married if that's that's going to be your sex life? Don't bother. Um, so well, I'm 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 really glad I haven't read that book now. I'm even more glad <laughs> I haven't read it. <laughs> but it just for me, I I wanted to put it in a positive light. I wanted to put, you know, what if you are in a passionate relationship? And of course, there's drawbacks because with this couple, their passion never never ebbs which in typical relationships, after a couple of years, there's some type of stability there. For them, there is no stability. Um, and I think that's true with some couples. Um, they well, in fact, I think it's probably, a turn, it's probably a turn-on for lots of couples, and, and maybe right. for, for, for V and her husband, that there's, there's something risky about their uh, intensity, their intimacy with each other, because what's intimacy about? I mean, it's about... Well, it's about that secret issue we started with, that there are, there are secrets that motivate us uh, in ways that we don't even understand all the time. And that goes to not only memoir writing, but obviously fiction writing. You know, what, what are the secrets that drive us? Um, if we knew them, of course, we, we might be able to do something about them. But there are, I mean, the intensity of uh, your engagement, the characters' engagement with each other uh, comes through. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, and uh, and one of the things too was, what lengths will a couple go to try to save their relationship or destroy one another? Um, because you either live with me or you live without me. And I was really, I was really kind of interested in that because I kind of saw Ava and Grant in those terms that they were either together. Or one of them wasn't coming out of it okay. Um, mm-hmm. So so I really, I just, I just, like I said, I let myself be unfiltered. And I just wrote it how I saw it and didn't worry about the PC police coming down on me. Didn't worry about publishers saying, you know, it's supposed to be a typical fat women's fiction with, mm-hmm. you know, bad sex scenes in it. I didn't worry about any of that. Well, sounds like. You achieved that goal, <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, anything else on your mind, Paula? Anything you'd like to talk about? Well, maybe you can talk about your own writing a little bit about well, your I feel new like book. I, yeah, well, the new book is. Uh, if I, I don't know if I said this earlier on, but uh, the Pope of Brooklyn is a, is a follow-up, the sequel, prequel to Subway to California, which is a. Um, a longer memoir about uh, well me, about my life, uh, my life, uh, and my family. Uh, I'm the last one standing in my family. Um, my father was a uh, uh, was a small time uh, mobster, and he. So there's a lot about being Italian American in the '50s and in, in, in Brooklyn. We came out to California because uh, my father was on the run from the FBI, and um, he was on the lam. And uh, for some reason, we ended up in, of all crazy places in the world, Berkeley, California. 
<laughs> and eventually he was tracked down. Um, it's a long story. Um, but this gives me a chance to, this gave me a chance as I've thought about it and reflected on it, this gave me a chance to talk about, well, how did, where did I come from? What is this about? I'm 10 years old. I'm in California, left, having left Brooklyn. Who knows? I mean, Brooklyn and Cal- Berkeley, pretty different places in the 60s. Very different. Uh, yeah, and it was uh, it was mind blowing kind of thing. You know, felt pretty uh, uh, detached from things. My my mother was a was a very gorgeous piece of work, very complicated. Um, swore like a trucker. Actually, I had an uncle who was a trucker. He she swore more than he did. And uh, and so my mother and father had a complicated, uh, intense um, relationship. They both uh, and I took care of them into their uh, until they died of both uh, with Alzheimer's and heart failure. Uh, but I I spent more time with my father as he was in assisted living at the end than I ever spent with him as a child because he was always on the make, he was always on the hustle. So for me. I was the only person in my family to graduate from high school, so I was the black sheep when I went to graduate school at, at Cal. Um, I had a, my younger brother did serious time in San Quentin. All my brothers were involved and had issues with the law. Uh, what made you just what? what yeah, that's the question. Yeah, not. that's the question that I investigate in both uh, oh. Subway to California and in the, the Pope of Brooklyn. And and I think I said this before, but the, he was called. So, so anyway, so Subway to California finished that. So so with Subway to California, it's about my life as, uh, as somebody who's you know started writing when I was very young. I lived in a Catholic monastery as Brother Joseph when I was a young man. I played cards for a living uh, around the world, um, uh, backed by some uh, big money backers with lots of vowels in their names, and. Uh, and I taught for a long time. I had my own chemical dependency issues. Um, I, I never met a lousy relationship that I didn't want to jump into. <laughs> and so I had some pretty spectacular kind of uh, cinematic uh, uh, crashes with the people I was involved with. Anyway, so w- what holds all this together? I don't know exactly. I know the myth of 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 a journey uh, matters a lot. So when I when I got to uh, the reason I wrote or the, uh, the formal explanation of how the Pope of Brooklyn came into existence is uh, after Subway came out, I, I was Googling, okay, probably myself. You know, no one, on, no one listening to this has ever Googled themselves, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm unique, I know. Anyway, I Google myself and I the see all The worst thing these... a writer can ever do is to <laughs> Google himself or herself. It's the worst thing. <laughs> Yeah, you find out all the people who hate you, all the haters out there. It's kind of Oh, my funny. God, these random people who come out of the woodwork and write stuff about you. <laughs> anyway, so I found these trial transcripts uh, in, in Brooklyn, uh, from Brooklyn and uh, Queens in the 60s. Um, never knew anything about it. And they featured this Joe DePrisco, and I lost on me. And it turns out to have been my father, who was a star witness in these uh, trials of dirty cops in Brooklyn and Queens. And my father had been uh, in business with these guys. He was playing them, even as they were playing him. So it was a complicated kind of thing. My father was uh, a complicated guy. He had his uh, virtues, as you were talking about your dad. 
he had his virtues and he had his uh, uh, vacancies. And he also uh, sounds kind of crafty, a little smart. Street yeah, he's one of those guys who pretends to be dumb, you know. And uh-huh. sometimes you you know that you know sometimes he is dumb, and but you don't know when. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he he was able to play. So my brother and I, my younger brother, uh, John, who was in uh, as I said the serious time in San Quentin, and he was a, uh, a drug addict for a long time, heroin addict. Uh, he and I, you know, were sort of uh, flip sides of the co- same coin. I had my own drug dependency, uh, which was different from his. And we were both united and divided around the drama and the romance of the family. Mm-hmm. So this is a, uh, this new, the new memoir is uh, an examination of that. Um, it, was, uh, it was hard to write, and I'm glad I did it. I don't know if I could write another one, although maybe I can. Um, Why do you think you couldn't write another one? You know, after, I don't know if you had this experience when you were dealing with uh, uh, Shyster's daughter, but, you know, at some point you say, oh, I, this is too hard to look at all day long. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, it's actually, Pope of Brooklyn was published the same time as my third book of poems. So, uh, you know, I, I always know about you, Paula, but I sort of work on two things at the same time. So I had the new book of poems coming out at the same time, and then I have a, and it, it followed a novel that I'd published a year earlier about a, a mobster who has dementia, and that was called uh, "Keep Your Friends Close" and uh, I forget the other thing. Um, so Paul, <laughs> it was actually, which is the and his, he called what he had the Alzheimer. So Mikey <laughs> was a, a mobster, a big time mobster. And it begins with Mikey saying, you know, realizing, well, he's he's got dementia, he's losing it, he's losing control of his 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 crew and his business, and he decide, you know, his parents both died, you know, in, in, uh, with Alzheimer's. Yeah, and I got a lot of oh, this is autobiographical. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, Samuel oh, Paul. Yeah, I got a lot of those questions during my readings. So he's thinking, uh, well, you know, I can't, I'm not going to go right off into the sunset drooling and in diapers. I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to take <laughs> myself out. So he uh-huh. decides to kill himself uh, because he can't steal, he can't deal with the indignity of it all. Well, meanwhile, somebody else tries to kill him. Well, that's different. That's wrong. Right. Absolutely. Because <laughs> it's not then, by his hand. Yeah, and then the battle begins. So, so uh, for me, I mean, all these different genres sort of, uh, give me a chance to investigate everything that's interesting to me, and, and I hope uh-huh. for the reader ultimately. But uh, memoir, poetry, and, and fiction—I don't know—they seem they seem much more closely related than they seem different sometimes. No, I do. I do think they're very closely related, and um, I've come across people who don't. You know, when I wrote the memoir, they were surprised I segued into writing a novel. Uh-huh. And I told them, you know, if you know if you've read The Shyster Starter, it reads almost like a novel. You know, it has a plot, it has um um chapters, it has scenes, it it has a narrative arc, you know, has all those things conflict, it has all those things that a typical novel has. Um so and it's a mystery and the mystery gets resolved at the end. So it 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 only made sense to me to move on to a, a psychological thriller after writing yeah. that book. 
And I, I really, I do, I agree. I, I wrote poetry years ago. And um, I think that uh, they all kind of can, they can all, if you, if you write them all, they can all make you a better writer in many ways. Because if you're writing poetry, every word matters. Every syllable matters. Um, and when I was writing poetry, it taught me how to be economical with my words. And mm-hmm. um, not to use abstractions, but to use concrete images. That was one mm-hmm. of the biggest things that poetry taught right. me when, when I was writing it. So I agree. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been fun talking. I hope yeah. you enjoyed our conversation. I, I enjoyed very much talking to you and, and learning more about uh, what makes you tick as a writer and and to to know that I think you and I are sort of uh, on the same on the same wavelength. It's about um, these secrets that uh, that generate everything and the search for meaning and the search for the right language and the search to honestly uh, represent character and conflict. I think. Uh, that's uh, true in spades of Inside V. I certainly aspire to making that true in everything I write. Lovely talking to you. I uh, hope you have a great day. Oh, and, you as well. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. Absolutely.